Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm Diana Baudet, and I'll be talking with Barton Gilman education attorney Paul O'Neill. Paul provides legal counsel to charter schools and private schools in New York and New Jersey. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you very much. Paul, I'd love to talk with you with sort of an eye on some wishful thinking and hopeful thinking about how schools should start to prepare for opening after the COVID-19 closures. Well, that's a good question. And let's start out where we are right now, and then we can get there. I mean, as I think everyone knows by now, schools all over America have been closed because of the virus. And that has happened in a way that is likely to evolve. And so I would say that most of the closures that we have seen so far are for just a couple of weeks. I think that's probably for roughly three reasons. One, a short-term closure for a couple of weeks took advantage of spring breaks that were already established in school schedules. And so they incorporated that into the, the closure thinking. Two, There's guidance from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which has indicated that 14-day closures would be useful because the incubation period for the virus is about 14 days. So that was kind of a logical benchmark. Mm -hmm. And third, mandatory social distancing rules gave state leaders, local health officials, and superintendents the idea that maybe starting right off, getting folks away from each other and distancing was a good first move. And then they can worry about what happens next. And so that puts us, you know, roughly where we are. Okay. You know, where we are, I think there's a lot of schools, teachers, parents, all wondering, where are we? What's the likelihood that we are going to return to school at all for the 2019-2020 school year. Maybe that's getting way ahead, but those are rumors. (laughs) Let's think about the middle term. I think it's a good question, but let's think about the middle term. So what lies between a couple of weeks of closure and ultimately reopening the school? Mm -hmm. And I think what we're seeing is kind of an inflection point. We're about at the end of those early term closures. We're about at the point where the two weeks or the three weeks is up. And folks are having to think about what they're going to do next. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control website, says that federal health officials are working on additional guidance to help schools determine how to reopen and what they're going to do about that. And so I think what we're seeing is governors who are extending these closure periods. We're, we're looking at closure periods for some states that are now already extending to the end of the school year. Mm-hmm. There are a number of states that have kind of left it open-ended. California, New Jersey, Pennsylvania have kind of left it open-ended. And, and there's a resource that you can look at if you're interested in this. Education Week Online provides a rapidly updated map which shows you who's doing what. And it's color-coded and it shows you how far out the different closures are. Okay. And that might be worth looking at. That's edweek.org, I guess. Kansas and Virginia have said they're closed entirely and they're going to stay closed. And I think that we can expect that making a pivot to going from treating this like a really bad snow day into something that requires us to provide instruction on a going forward basis, kind of an open-ended going forward basis, is really the move we need to make. And I would say that most places are really just getting started with changing their mindset for that. Okay. And by that, do you mean moving from pure enrichment 
to more seeing actual new learning, new lessons, testing? Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. I've encountered a bunch of districts and charter schools who have been doing reinforcement. They have not been learning new stuff Mm -hmm. because using the extended snow day metaphor, they have been thinking, all right, we just got to get through this time and then we'll figure it out. And for the reasons that I mentioned before, that made some sense in the short term, perhaps, but it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense going forward. One thing I want to point out is that the rules that impact what schools are going to have to do may be in flux. And that's a kind of middle term sort of consideration. Let me say something about that. Last week on Friday, the president signed a new stimulus bill putting about $2 trillion towards the recovery from the virus. Mm -hmm. And a whole lot of that money is going towards education. Because of that, there were provisions in there that may impact what the rules are going forward for schools, whether they're charter schools or district schools. Essentially, Congress gave to the U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, the authority to take 30 days and figure out what provisions in several major laws she would like flexibility on, which is to say potential waivers and other softening of rules. And so that would be the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is the main big federal education law, ESSA is the the current version of that, Mm -hmm. as well as two of the special ed laws, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and Section 504. And so 30 days out from last Friday, which is roughly the 26th of April, that's a Sunday, so I don't know exactly what day they're going to put it on, Secretary DeVos will tell Congress what she wants to do. Okay. And it's certainly possible that that may have some real ramifications. And it's anticipated that what she chooses will be in addition to some of the ways that she has already relaxed things. Is that true? Well, what's happened so far isn't so much a relaxation of existing rules as an interpretation of them. The federal government, the U.S. Department of Education, interprets and implements the big federal education laws, such as the ones relating to special ed. And they have issued three rounds of guidance over the last couple of weeks, giving as much flexibility within the existing laws as they can give. But that's different than saying we are going to change the existing laws and soften some of the requirements. I'll give you an example of the kind of thing that has been tossed around. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act We call that the IDEA. It's the main special education law, and it requires student IEPs and a whole laundry list of services within certain very specific timelines, certain costs, all sorts of things in a very regimented way. And one of the things that's been talked about is freeing charter schools, district schools, all sorts of public schools from some of the requirements of the IDEA as far as possibly saying that for a year, it might be suspended. That was certainly floated in the Senate by Senate Republicans that they might give states the opportunity to simply waive the IDEA requirements, which would be inclusive of student IPs Mm -hmm. for a year as folks contend with this. And there have been some more measured possibilities, such as maybe limiting not so much all of IDEA, but the compensatory services that could be provided to students at the end of whatever closure period we're talking about. A lot of services 
are likely to be deferred till then. And it's possible that there may be a lot of costs associated with those deferred compensatory educational services. And so it might be easier for big city districts, for example, if they were to get a, some kind of a waiver on having to provide those services at the end. So we don't know. Mm-hmm. But folks who are concerned about this should be looking at the end of April to see what the department comes up with. And then Congress will have to act and decide what to actually do. Okay. And would anything that they do come up with always take the form of allowing the states to decide? So it would still be state-by-state decisions, not a blanket federal decision for schools? Not 100% clear. It depends on how it shakes out. Certainly, there is a great tendency to defer to states because all of education is, you know, state-driven. The federal role in education is really limited to funding it and the strings that we attach to funding it. So I would expect that states will have a large role in deciding this, but that's not, you know, it's not necessarily the case. It could be that some uniform practice might be imposed across the board, but we will have to see. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like schools and parents will be eagerly awaiting April 26th. They will. In fact, I was on a call earlier today with some special education parent advocates who were saying, well, look, if they're going to reopen the question of what the rules should be, maybe we should reopen it on the parent end as well. For example, an example that was given to me today was maybe special ed services should not cut off at age 21 as they currently do under the law. Maybe if services have been interrupted for these kids, maybe they should be able to go to age 22. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not in the law. But we're talking about everything being on the table here. Yeah. Who will be included in those decisions? Is it just the U.S. Department of Education? Will they consider voices from special education and other areas of education, parent voices, educator voices? Oh, I think Friday was a starting gun. I think every lobbying group in Washington that has anything to do with education is pulling together its thinking and and trying to come up with proposals. For all, remember the the ESEA. That's about everything. That's all of the federal money for Title One. That's all sorts of programs. Nothing to do with the the special ed laws, or at least linked to them, but separate from them. So yes, I think there is extraordinary lobbying going on right now in Washington. Okay. Okay. Hopefully that will end up being a good thing. Hopefully it will. <laughs> so, what would reopening look like? If say you know everything goes smoothly and we flatten the curve and by May 15th, some schools are ready to open. I would assume that's going to be a pretty significant job to reestablish classrooms and vendor contracts and everything that else that goes into a brick and mortar school that's kind of been put on pause right now. Oh, I think that's right. I think your reopening date is optimistic. I know it is. From from my perspective. (laughs) It's because I have kids at home. (laughs) So let's go with that. But yeah, I think absolutely we need to think about what reopening looks like. And I have to say, I don't think folks are there yet. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast is because I think I have been trying to preach to folks that they need to start thinking about that. So, So I can think of three different models for what reopening could look like, whether it's in May or June or sometime before the next school year starts. It could just be as simple as saying, all right, green light, everything's open again. You know, that come out, you know, if there was an air raid, the air raid's over, everybody (laughs) comes up out of their hiding spots and we start again, back to normal, right from the beginning. 
Then there's what you might think of as a kind of a yellow light, if the other one is a green light, which would be some sort of partial reopening. Maybe that means a limited schedule, a school day that's shorter, or perhaps a partially virtual program with partially in-person program, either for certain kids or at certain locations or certain numbers of kids, certain parts of town. I mean, it may well be that this is spotty. I got to say, I think the full green light come up out of your bunkers notion seems somewhat unrealistic if what we're talking about is something in the relatively near term. Mm -hmm. Because unless I misheard somewhere, there's no vaccine right now. They've only just started to approve drugs for therapeutic purposes for people who already have it. We're a long way off. So just starting with the green light seems unlikely. And the the third option would just be that this is going to be an off and on kind of a thing. I mean, I think people speak as if once we once we beat the virus, then we're back to normal. Well, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going to happen, especially if we don't have a vaccine for a while. So I think what you might see are schools opening and closing and opening and closing, triggered by some kind of spike in a particular region or a part of town. And they say, all right, for the next two weeks, we are back in closure mode. And that means that we have to find a way to, to transition between those two realities. Right now, they've been entirely separate. There's the old way, and yeah. then there's the current way. But I think we have to prepare for something in the middle. Yeah, that's a great point. So how can schools start preparing and being, you know, proactive on that front for whether it's the unlikely green, the yellow, or the off and on? Are there things that schools can be doing so that students are actually moving forward in their learning while we kind of go through the next, like you mentioned, 18 months is probably likely? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to do is to confront that inflection point that we're at, where we have to stop thinking about the snow day and start thinking about providing instruction to kids in a different sort of way. And, and if you go state to state, city to city, you're going to find incredible variety on that. I mean, Denver is really just getting started in that kind of work as compared to New York City, for example, because Denver took a kind of a break between closure and rolling out the kind of remote learning that they're doing. They got more preparation in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for some places that we're at that inflection point and some places they might be coming up to it, but one way or the other, we've got to deal with that. And thinking about whether new content is being offered to kids is a good metric for that. Mm -hmm. But I would say overall, the biggest first thing that I think needs to be confronted is you need to have responsible planning and consideration of operational and programmatic and financial and human resources ramifications. we got to do forecasting like a business would do to say, okay, what if it's May? What if it's September? What if it's December? What are we going to do in these different contingencies? What kind of resources is this going to impact? What kind of staffing issues come up? And to be responsible enough to take that seriously and get ready to do that. There are a bunch of smaller issues that I think fall within that big, broad umbrella. I'll throw a couple of them. One issue is student discipline. That's something that my colleague Jamie Fernand has been focusing on, and I really haven't heard anybody else talking about. But we've, we've moved into a remote learning environment, but we can still have kids who break the rules, important rules like plagiarism and cyberbullying and cheating on exams. All those things can still exist. And to be honest, in a virtual platform, the cyberbullying thing may be a lot worse than it was before. So what do we do about that? 
can we have consequences in the short term for a situation where people are entitled to have education and the only way we're delivering it is online and yet they've violated our rules. So I think a lot more thought has to be given to that. And Jamie and I will be doing some of that thinking over the coming weeks. Uh, Another consideration for that relates back to special education. If a kid with an IEP has been removed from the classroom for disciplinary reasons for 10 days or more in a school year, you can't remove them. You can't punish them again until you make a determination through the proper channels that are used for this about whether the the problem is linked to the disability. And if a determination is made that it is linked to a disability, then you're not allowed to remove them. So anyway, that whole structure, it's unclear to me whether that'll work in a virtual environment. So does that mean that all of the consequences for them have to be deferred indefinitely? There are a lot of issues that relate to discipline in those circumstances, and schools really need to think about revising their policies. Another factor is, are you ready for the operational issues like the equipment issues and getting hotspots for students, are you able to provide what you've already been providing in a very emergency short-term basis? Are you able to do that over the longer term? And that should go into that broader thinking. Mm -hmm. When we start to move towards thinking about reopening, so now we get hopefully in May, as you suggested it, but who knows, May Mm -hmm. or June or July or whatever it is, when we get to the point where we say, okay, we want to go back to normal, how do we know where the kids are in terms of their capacities, in terms of whether they have lost ground towards their educational goals? We're going to have to do a wave of formative assessments of assessing whether a child is at grade level or above or, or even far below grade level. How are we going to do that? What is that going to look like for a school? What's it going to look like for a district or a state? Because then you've got to make a decision. Are we moving kids forward? Are we moving them forward in grade? Are we letting them graduate from high school? If they're way behind because of this whole chaos, or are we going to to let them graduate, or are we going to hold on to them? And if we decide we're moving them forward, either in grade or with graduation, what do we do to remedy their problems? If you're trying to move a child from fifth grade to sixth grade, but they haven't mastered fifth grade, does that mean that we now have to have a whole space of resources that are going to have to assist those kids in getting past their problem. And who's going to do that? And who's going to pay for that? And where does that money come from? What are we going to do? I think of all the big headline problems that we have dealing with that issue, what do we do to remedy the problems we've created in this process? That's the biggest one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think of my own kids and I think their heads would spin around if they heard about that problem because I'm sure they're not even considering it, that, you know, they may not move forward. Well, somebody said to me the other day, and this was someone who's a career education person who knows a lot, that we should just keep this whole class of kids back for a year. Mm -hmm. Like everybody should stay back. And I said, well, That's one approach to the problem, but it also treats education like it's the only thing that's going on in people's lives. And it's not. You know, there are a lot of different reasons why being held back in grade would be incredibly traumatic Mm -hmm. for kids, incredibly traumatic for their families. And what about the kids who are supposed to go to college? So I think that that's certainly a way that folks can handle it. And we'll have to see how specialized it gets by school, by district, by state. But that may not be an answer 
that many people want to consider. And if they don't consider it, then we have to think about other things. Like what about accountability? If we are as, as we are, because the federal government took this position, waiving standardized tests for this current school year and states are passing rules that follow the federal rule that came down a couple of weeks ago. So we're not holding them accountable to take the test to state assessments. But what about next year? Are we going to give some sort of special dispensation? Are we going to lower the standards? Are we going to make them more flexible? Given the fact that we know we've got kids who may have been out of normal schooling for one or two or three or four months, are we going to have accountability light for one year? Yeah. I don't know. Right. And also, what about SATs, ACTs, college board level exams that are canceled for now? But they don't have the same, yeah. you know, blanket suspension. But those kids are not learning anything new to then contribute to their ability to take those tests next year. Well, I mean, it's certainly possible. I mean, there could be some kids who are using this time to drill down and get even more prepared than they would normally <laughs> be. But that's probably not a lot of those kids. Yeah. So, you know, so think about that exact question when we think about this off and on and off and on and off and on again possibility that. You know, before we have a vaccine and maybe even afterwards, we could be talking about opening and closing and opening and closing. So whatever standard you set for the preparation for standardized tests or for any expectations in terms of accountability, how do we factor in not knowing if we're going to have those constant interruptions? How do we factor in the standards that we're going to set? I think it's very difficult to forecast. And so maybe that means we need to be incredibly flexible with this. And we may have to acknowledge that the ripples that come from this closure are going to persist, you know, a year, two years from now as the ramifications show themselves. How are you advising schools if they're asking, you were mentioning, talking about holding back a year and not moving kids forward? Are you advising schools on graduation ceremonies and, you know, this class of seniors and the things that they're missing out on right now? What kinds of questions are you fielding about that? Well, that's an area where you do see a lot of anxiety at families. You know, folks are very invested in the success of their children and in the rights of passage that go with milestones like graduating, whether it's from high school or even from middle school, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it may be or, or college. I think that increasingly I am hearing of graduations that are canceled, but rescheduled in some form later on. For example, I just heard at American University, they have canceled the in-person graduation for their students for this spring. They're doing an online something or other, but in the fall, they're going to have an in-person ceremony and go through all the pomp. And I think that it may well be that for K-12 to education, we see a similar sort of thing, a kind of ceremony that's not necessarily tied to the actual receipt of the degree or of the moving up, but that allows people to cheer and be proud and gather together for that right. I certainly hope that by the fall, those things will happen. And I would expect that that's something we're going to see a lot of. Yeah. Okay. Is there any special considerations for charter schools and everything that we talked about? You know, are they subject to special ramifications through the suspension of standardized testing? Or does that put the renewal in any kind of risk? Mm Mm-hmm. It's a good question. It's not a question that the charter folks are asking very much in my experience. I've done a couple of these 
webinars recently for charter school authorizers, and I've emphasized the fact that when you interrupt the accountability provisions for charter schools, you really you really create some confusion because charter schools are defined as schools that get more flexibility in exchange for more accountability. Mm. And the accountability is usually tied to state test scores. Well, now we got rid of state test scores for this year. And as we've just discussed, we might have a strange environment for them next year. So charter schools are on the clock. They get a permission to operate for a set period of years. Usually it's five, sometimes it's less. And then they are up for either renewal or closure. And so if you take away a year of scores, you have to ask yourself, what have you done to the accountability, the future prospects for that school? If you mess with two years of scores, what are you doing? Does that mean that charter school authorizers that oversee those schools are going to be incredibly flexible and be less likely to close school? And we'll just give some automatic grace period for renewal? Maybe. Maybe in some cases you may see them trying to hold the line and trying to use the accountability data they had before these problems started and go from that. But I think it's a big black hole. We don't know the answer to certainly it's an issue for district schools as well, but less so because charter schools are so defined by the contract that they sign. This is essentially saying the terms of the contract that you sign cannot be met. So what do we do? Yeah. And when we get a little farther, I think, and when we know a little bit more about the scope of the problem, then we'll know how much of a challenge it is. If everybody, if tomorrow morning they find the cure, and by May 1st we're all back in the food town in Starbucks, then it won't be as big of an issue. But the longer it goes, the more it is. Yeah. And would charter schools get in touch independently with their authorizer? Or is that something that any kind of relaxation on that accountability, would that be on a state level? Would that be on a federal level? Or is it up to each authorizer? Well, one of the problems with the charter school sector is there's so much variety, it's hard to talk about it in generality. Okay. So not only are states different state to state, but authorizers are are often very different from each other. So in some cases, the authorizer is the state education department. In some, it's the district. Sometimes the authorizer is a university or a nonprofit organization. And so you have this incredible variety of who the authorizer is, and that can have a big effect on what the authorizer does. And so I think that of the various issues that impact the virus closures, one of the ones with the most variety is going to be charter school authorizers and how they handle the ramifications. And it's just, it's hard to generalize about. Okay. All right. You've covered so much ground and so thoughtfully. Do you have any last minute take-homes that you want to make sure to include? I hope that folks are able to make the mental shift into thinking about this as an ongoing challenge and one that requires planning. It really requires planning. Just Just as I'm sure every business in America that's been impacted by this is is trying to lay out the different possibilities. Schools and school districts and networks of schools have got to do that. They also have to stay really up to date on how the rules are changing. I'll be honest, I thought that when the schools started to shut down, a school lawyer like me would start to have some free time and start (laughs) being able to paint my living room. But I am busier than ever because the rules are evolving as this thing goes. And unless you stay up to speed on that, it's really hard to know what to expect. 
And so I think schools need to keep finding those resources, staying on top of this, but at the same time, not deferring, not waiting to figure out what you would do in a couple of different contingency plans, scenarios. And I think we're starting to see people do that. We've even seen the White House push back the expected date for when we might resume a more normal operations, and that's likely to push even further. But I think schools are now shifted to remote learning, and we have to fully explore that at the same time as we think about pulling back from that and getting back to normal. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Paul. You've, like I said, have been so thoughtful. And just a word on mentioning how busy you've been and resources. I do want to mention that Paul has written a number of pieces that we've placed on our website related to schools and and COVID and then just schools in general. And you can find all of those on our website at www.bglaw.com. And you can find them on all of our social media accounts, including Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for Barton Gilman. Paul, thank you again for joining me today, and I wish you and your family all the best. New York is struggling, and I think everybody's hearts are with you right now, so please be well. Thank you very much. Same to you. Thank you. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.